My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand economic inequality through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Um, as always, we're starting with our housekeeping, because three weeks ago in our episode on uh, the Western media and Ukraine, we, uh, we, we, we said the following. So, Walter, what's the, what's the future here? Is there, I mean, uh, as always, we don't provide a recipe for, uh, for, for solving any problems. Uh, we, for, for, for that, I think, I think this is the wrong place. Uh, but I mean, uh, what we're not intelligent the... enough for that, Dario. We oh, can just uh, observe uh, the problems and other more clever people can think of all the solutions. <laughs> I was going to say that it's very easy to criticize things. Um, Walter, I understand that you received some criticisms um, about what we said in exactly this episode. Uh, I did. Not so much the episode, but especially this fragment. And this is quite interesting to me because this is a common theme. Obviously, the bit about needing more intelligent people to find the solutions is, was a self-deprecating joke. Because obviously no one is more intelligent than we are. Let's be clear about that. Let's face that, yes. <laughs> but uh, more importantly, it is the fallacy, it is the idea that after analyzing a problem or strengths, that you have to come up with practical steps, that you have to come up with solutions. The criticism was, hey, it is weak for you to say, these are all the problems, and then to say, I don't have anything on how to now improve the situation. That was the criticism. But these are two different exercises, and it's important for listeners to understand this, that our purpose of the podcast is to highlight certain dynamics that we are observing. Those, those dynamics uh, may then, if we highlight them and clarify them, hopefully will, lead, will contribute somehow to uh, listeners finding solutions for themselves. But these two things are not the same exercise. One thing is the analysis, another thing is the actual finding of solutions. There used to be in a consultancy, uh, and generally, I think, in the world with report writing, a little bit of this habit, I would call it a disease, of ending every report with recommendations. So you have a long report about child's mortality or whatever it is, and then the last short chapter would be recommendations, step one, step two, step three. And those recommendations would always be fluff. It makes you look really good because it makes you look productive, constructive, not just critical, but also adding value to the world. But in reality, the value of the report was the criticism. It wasn't the solutions. The solutions were not thought out, were not properly developed. And the reason for that is that you can only find solutions based on a specific actor. So in our case, with respect to our podcast, if we say Western media is biased with respect to its coverage of Ukraine, and that is bad for the West, then if a government phones us and say, we heard your podcast, um, how should we as Ministry of Foreign Affairs do things better? Then I'd be delighted to work with them in finding solutions. Or if a newspaper says, we heard your podcast, how can we come up with solutions? I'd be delighted to work with them and to create a whole, a whole trajectory finding the right approach to the world. Wonderful. But in general, broad terms, to say here we have some solutions doesn't make any sense because it is not within the context of a specific actor. So it's perfectly valid in this world. In fact, it is the only way to do it, to critically look at something and not straight away feel that you somehow have to signal that you're constructive and productive and positive. And I think that this answered the question or the criticism rather well. Um, and with this, uh, I mean, going from, from one listener interaction onto the second one, let's move on to our Question of the week. And this week's uh, question of the week comes from our listener, uh, Julian, from Germany, who sent us two very interesting emails. And from this conversation, we came up with the following question or questions of the week. In 1971, the United States abandoned the gold standard. From the 1970s onwards, income inequality shot up. Would introducing the gold standard offer solutions? And what about cryptocurrency? 
and how about the position of the dollar, the petrodollar and other such uh, global economic items? How do they affect the position of the West? Um, so let, let's start at the beginning. Um, yeah, with reintroducing the gold standard, um, offer any solutions here? Well, not coincidentally, this fits very nicely into the topic of today, which is why we waited with dealing with this uh, question, of course, until today, because we're going to talk about income inequality and wealth inequality. It is absolutely true that these two things coincided. Uh, you can make a very nice graph. 1971, this was part of the so-called Nixon shock, where uh, facing very significant economic problems at home, Nixon abandoned the gold standard. At that time, he wanted to do it only temporarily and introduce some other measures to stabilize uh, the dollar. And at the same time, if you draw a line, you can see indeed income inequality and wealth inequality uh, going through the roof in the United States. And that has been a process that has continued ever since. Now, this is one of those things where correlation is not necessarily the same as causation, right? The evidence that this was actually the that the abandoning the gold standard was actually the reason for income inequality shooting up is minimal there are some people who try to push it that's that's that argument but those are typically people who are advocating if you like for the austrian school of economics who have a deeply seated dislike for the government mistrust the government and they're saying by abandoning the gold standard the government is getting too much freedom to mess up monetary policy, basically to uh, create inflation if they like, by irresponsible behavior, um, deficit spending. So basically fund their expenditure by creating a deficit that then has to be repaid in the future. It is it, the narrative that the gold standard somehow is good for the economy is typically an argument that is made for those who do not believe that the government is competent enough to make its own decisions because for our listeners just if you don't have an economics background the gold standard is basically the government saying for every dollar or every euro if europe were to introduce the gold standard but for every dollar that you have in your hands you can go to the government and can get a uh, equal amount of gold it's basically saying we will have enough gold reserves to back up the dollar. So are the dollar is actually worth gold. Now, that is a it's absolutely a mechanism to limit the government. There's no doubt about that. But whether limiting the government is good or not is not at all obvious. In fact, by far most economists, uh, the economic consensus, I think it's fair to say, is that uh, limiting the government through the gold standard is not the way to go because you reduce the ability for the government to adjust to shocks. You uh, reduce the ability for the government to, for example, pump money into the economy um, to, to readjust supply and demand. And the government has actually been doing that relatively successfully over the years. So the answer is, the connection between income inequality and the gold standard is not at all obvious. And those who believe that the gold standard is the way to go are typically those who believe that the government cannot make its own decisions. I am an optimist and I would like to know, I would like to think that even though there is a lot of incompetence within governments, for sure, overall, I would still give them the benefit of the doubt and, and, and give them the tools necessary to adjust whenever necessary. And then what about cryptocurrency? Well, cryptocurrency is very similar in its approach and its thinking. So it's, 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 it's good that uh, these things were combined in this question. Cryptocurrency, once again, is a cool version of the gold standard, right? Whereas gold standard is old fashioned. Remember that this comes all the way from the time that coins were actually made of gold and then silver and then bronze and because gold became too expensive. Uh, cryptocurrency is a way of saying we don't like the idea of central banks and the government controlling our currency. And so cryptocurrency is a way to circumvent that. Once again, taking power away from the government. And people who do not think things through says, yeah, this is great because governments are manipulating us. But we want governments to manipulate us. Because what is the government, essentially? A government is us as a society appointing a few people to make decisions that are good for the collective, right? The idea that the government somehow is an, is an evil entity out there messing up our lives is, of course, nonsense. In any society, you need to appoint people to make certain common decisions that would 
never work if they're voluntary. You need the government to make certain decisions that are imposed on everyone for a well-run society. Gold standards take tools away from our society to adjust to changing circumstances. And that's not a good thing. Cryptocurrency is very, very dangerous in that sense. Uh, not so much the technology behind it. Blockchain technology can be amazing for many reasons, right? That's the, that's the technological foundation of cryptocurrency. Blockchain technology can be very useful in many ways, but cryptocurrency is somehow thinking that people do not need collective action. And I don't see how you can defend that position. Mm -hmm. this, this is already going into another episode idea we have for the future, the role of government. Um, but, but, but more to this in the future. Um, the last part of the question. So how about the position of the dollar, the petrodollar, and other such global economic items? Um, how are they affecting the position of the West? This is really interesting. What you see is that the... And this goes also back to sort of the gold standards and the Bretton Woods agreements. If people can Google that, we don't have time to get into that. Keep in mind for our listeners that this is not an economics uh, podcast, so we don't want to delve into too many details. But in the decades after the Second World War, the West seemed to dominate international politics and seemed to be the answer to our future, right? At least from its own selfish perspective, from its own narrow perspective, the West believed that they had found the formula. They defeated Nazi, uh, the Nazis, they were going to defeat the communists, and liberal democracy was going to thrive. And then for 50 years, that indeed seemed to, be, seemed to be the case, at least if you lived in Europe or North America. And during that time period, the West had a number of things going for them, a, a number of very big advantages. And a huge advantage was the dominance of Western currencies in the world. First, it was the British pound because of the British Empire. And then when the British pound collapsed as the global currency reserve, it became the dollar. So the dollar replaced the British pound. Now, from a Western perspective, that's both fine, right? It doesn't matter. Dollar or pound, the West is controlling it. And one of the huge advantages of that is that uh, you can control your money supply without the usual downsides to it. So if a small, if a country in Turkey, a country that doesn't trade with anyone else, prints a lot of money, if a government prints money because they uh, need to finance their debt, finance their expenditure, then the, one of the results of that is inflation. Basically the price, uh, the, the value of, uh, the, the, the price of goods goes up, the value of $1 goes down. You can buy less with $1 tomorrow than you can today. But if your currency is the global currency, then that inflation is spread out over the world and your country doesn't get as, as, as affected as much. So for the United States, having the dollar as the global currency is, was a huge advantage to be able to cheaply finance its own debts, to finance its own expenditure. Uh, because they wouldn't have the inflationary downside that a normal country would have. On top of that, a lot of countries actually had to do, sort of had to have a respectable relation with the United States because they needed to keep those dollars flowing. And that goes back to petrodollars and all that. They became beholden to the United States in some way. Um, so the dominance of the dollar has been an incredible tool, way more influential in many ways than, for example, the armed forces of the United States, has been an incredible tool in controlling global dynamics and geopolitics, international relations. Now, that is under threat, right? Even though the dollar is still the dominant currency in the world, no doubt about it, the euro has been challenging it, but again, the euro is Western. Um, China and Russia are attempting to sort of overthrow that financial regime. And whether they will succeed or not is unclear, but it is obvious that it is something that could be another contributing factor in the decline of the West if, if they lose that grip, if they lose that control over international finance. And with this, I think we can move on to the next category and with this starting today's episode. What are the facts in two minutes? It is always good to start with definitions. When we are talking about inequality today, we refer to, the, to income inequality and wealth inequality. According to the OECD, income is defined as household disposable income in a particular year. 
It consists of earnings, self-employment, capital income, and public cash transfers. Income taxes and social security contributions paid by households are deducted. Wealth inequality, on the other hand, refers to the uneven distribution of wealth among individuals and entities. Wealth is determined by taking the total market value of all physical and intangible assets owned and then subtracting all debts. It is also important to highlight the difference between absolute and relative poverty. Absolute poverty is used to describe a condition where an individual does not have the financial means to obtain commodities to sustain life. Relative poverty, on the other hand, refers to the standard of living compared to the economic standards of living within the same surroundings. One measurement of a country's inequality is the Gini coefficient. The Gini coefficient is based on the comparison of cumulative proportions of the population against cumulative proportions of income they receive. And it ranges between zero in the case of perfect equality and one in the case of perfect inequality. The problem with the Gini coefficient is that it measures overall inequality in a society, but it does not differentiate between different parts of society. A Western country uh, comparison, um, the G US Gini coefficient rose from 0 0.43 in the 1990s to 0.49 today. The German Gini coefficient rose from 0.28 in 2012 to 0.3 today. And lastly, the UK Gini coefficient rose from 0 0.25 in, the 19, in 1977 to 0 0.34 today. And then here are a few more statistics to give you an overview of the world's and the West's economic inequality. A 2021 Oxfam report found that collectively the 10 richest men in the world owned more than the combined wealth of the bottom 3.1 billion people, almost half of the entire world population. The biggest number of dollar millionaires is reported in the United States with 22 million millionaires, approximately 39% of the world's total. However, at the same time, the official poverty rate in 2021 indicated that 37.9 million people uh, live in poverty in the United States. Federal Reserve data shows that as of 2021, the top 1% of households in the US held 32% of the country's wealth, while the bottom 50% only held 2.6%. In recent decades, wealth inequality has substantially increased in the United States. And with this, uh, let's move on to the next category. What is the bubble? And uh, yeah, then the jumping right into the bubble, um, we kind of discussed obviously before this episode, so what are the main challenges uh, that the world is facing today? And this is partly the reason why we're talking about economic inequality today. But the other one is uh, environmental issues, you know, so those are the two main issues. Absolutely. The world currently has to deal with those, those two big questions. Now, I hope that listeners don't ask us to find solutions to the environment and international poverty. That's that's a little bit too much uh, to deal with. Uh, there is uh, those two questions have the capacity to actually end our world. If the environment doesn't get taken care of in better ways, more sustainable ways, then at some point our human existence is absolutely endangered. And if income inequality and wealth inequality especially isn't dealt with, then at some point we're going to have revolution. And we mentioned this before in previous episodes, there is a real scenario or real future where people with pitchforks are going to throw out the establishment, are going to throw out people who have money, who live in large houses, who dominate politics, who dominate economics. And this is one of the things that I've never really understood from my own surroundings. And certainly if you read the stories about the multi-billionaires, that's not my surroundings. Uh, if you want to keep your billions, or at least most of your billions, if you want to keep your huge economic privilege, then you have to really work very hard on creating some kind of income equality process you have to be the one on the breach stepping in front of the cameras and saying from today onwards we're going to reduce income inequality we're going to lift up the poor and we're going to tax the wealthy and so whenever i hear bill gates or anyone else making the case that they're paying too many taxes and that 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 they they don't want to be you know because they're such good such good people and that they they spend their money on all kinds of charities but that the tax burden is getting too high I want to tear my hair out and say they need a better advisor. They want their children to live in some luxury. 
you, they don't want their children to be thrown out of their palaces with, with pitchforks, then please, please stop using this narrative and start working to create greater equality. Exactly, because they actually have something to lose while the people then conducting these revolutions or basically partaking them, they have nothing to lose but their chains. And that's exactly the thing. Revolutions get started by people who do not have anything to lose from that revolution. And so you're happy with your current situation. You're a million, you don't even have to be Bill Gates. You're a multimillionaire. You live in a really nice house and you've got three expensive cars and you sent your children to expensive universities. Brilliant. Good for you. Now start working on making sure that people don't resent you too much. Mm, and one of my, my professors, uh, yeah, I, I did during my undergrad, uh, he, he always used, um, and this is obviously more anecdotal, um, but basically the amount of walls in a society as an indicator. So if rich people feel the need that they need to put walls around their property, that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous sign. Absolutely. And that's very much related, I think, to the bubble that we will be discussing today. But it's very much related to the idea that somehow being wealthy is a virtue, that somehow having 100 million in your bank account means that you're, re you're a really good person somehow. You've done a lot of good work in your life and you have to defend yourself against the, the masses who begrudge you rather than understanding that you're 100 million is the result of a society allowing you to get that 100 million and you have to stay connected to that society with isolating yourself by putting up those walls. What you're saying is that my wealth has nothing to do with you, stay away from me, but in the end, you're actually increasing the chances of you being attacked with those pitchforks. So let's, let's dive into the underlying, um, well, the underlying patterns here. And I think the, the best way to do this is usually a historical overview. So, so how did this kind of, how did Western society evolve over time that we are where we are today? Well, what's very interesting is that the base, the foundation of Western society is in the other direction, right? So if we go back, an interesting observation is if you go back to statistics from the 14th and 15th century, and you draw a line about income inequality from there to now, to 2022, you will, you will see a natural tendency for income inequality to go up, uh, especially when um, there's economic growth, when there's periods of growth. But overall, regardless of what period, whether you're talking about 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th or 21st century, you see income inequality increasing, especially with economic growth. And the reason for that is that wealth creates wealth it becomes a virtuous circle if you like uh, the more you own, if the moment you own a few shares the likelihood that the, down the line you own more shares is going to be greater the moment you own a bit of land the likelihood of you owning more land in the future greater um, capital starts creating those uh, continuous benefits that those without capital don't have for you so there is a natural tendency in our society in general to create income inequality now, if you look at the political side of that, that in the 14th century, still talking late Middle Ages, and then the Italian Renaissance and, and later Renaissances elsewhere in Europe, the view of society on wealth was relatively negative. People didn't like the wealthy. Uh, what they did respect, certainly in the Middle Ages, because that was the social structure, they, they often respected nobility, and nobility with the castles and the manor, manor lords were, were, uh, were respected simply because that was the feudal structure. But if you were a banker, you weren't particularly liked. And we know this from the way that people wrote about these people, right? You know, the, 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 the banking families were frowned upon. Being wealthy, if, especially if you didn't come from nobility, was something seen as negative then comes the enlightenment that we discussed in previous uh, episodes um, and um, the movement to overthrow the old regime of classes and to make society focus on empowering the individual 
you see the build-up of government institutions that eventually in the 20th century start very actively reducing that income inequality. And that is very much in line with the philosophy, the, the foundational philosophy behind liberal society. Often people confuse, think, oh, liberal society is capitalist, so it's, it's completely all right for liberal democracy, liberal thinking to have income inequality. But capitalism is a tool to achieve something. Capitalism has always, if you look at philosophy and if you look at political discourse, has been, if you like, the most elegant tool, the best tool that we have available to us to achieve the empowering of the individual, to achieve breaking through the old chains of nobility and hierarchy and say, we as a society want everyone who is born to be able to make the best out of their lives. And if we had another system that's not capitalistic, okay, fine, but it turns out that capitalism works really well because it empowers the middle class, etc., etc. So, so far, we're completely in line with the idea of creating a better liberal democratic tomorrow. But then the bubble starts growing. Slowly over time, the bubble starts moving from, hey, we've got a really cool formula here to saying, Okay, capitalism is an important part. We see more and more people becoming wealthy. Surely we should celebrate that wealth because they're entrepreneurs. They've, they are the backbone of our society. Which is, of course, not exactly correct, at least not the full picture. Because the entrepreneurs depend on society to support them to become rich in the first place. And rather than frowning on having too many rich people relative to poor people, we start saying those rich people is something that we should aim for. And this was very much part of the American dream. It was very much part of the bubble that the United States created. And that has eventually led to or is leading to its downfall that we're witnessing right now. Yeah, which I mean, uh, the, the, the term that comes to mind here, and we've talked about this a lot in the past, is hyper-individualism. Yeah, hyper-individualism, where it's no longer about respecting the society that allows you to be who you are, that allows you to get good education, that allows you to sell your goods, that has a uh, legal system that protects you, and basically saying, if I'm economically successful, that is all because of me, and I deserve everything I have, and taxes are just a way for society to steal money from me, even though I'm the one who, who built up that capital, where... Is in reality, that's of course a huge, huge misinterpretation of how you became wealthy in the first place. Now, a good example of that, if I look at that historical path from the 13th century, maybe I could quiz you as an old student of mine. <laughs> uh, besides uh, 20th century government institutions imposing redistributive policies, so basically taxing the rich and redistributing that to the poor or to the elderly, that is, that is a very important way of reducing income inequality. But besides that 20th century mechanism, there were three moments in that history from the 13th, 14th century to now that led to huge um, reductions in income inequality. So if you like improvements in equality in society. Okay, any idea what um, they were? Based, I mean, okay, so I have to admit, I do not remember this, but based on my intuition, I would say wars. Um, I'm pretty sure the 30 year war uh, played a huge role maybe the Second World War as well, and uh, then let's throw in a pandemic in there. Well, I mean, you get 9 out of 10. Um, the, the Thirty Years' War actually is a bit harder to distinguish from other, uh, from other bits, so the Thirty, Wars doesn't show, Thirty Years' War doesn't show as clearly as maybe it should, because we know that it was incredibly destructive. But beyond that, you're absolutely right. The plague, Black Death, when Black Death struck and killed countless people in Europe, what you see is that the rich became less rich, and the poor weren't as much affected because they were already poor. So you have a huge um, reduction in income inequality, showing, by the way, that the rich need manpower. They need the poor to be healthy and to be working. If the poor get killed by the Black Death, the rich can no longer stay rich. So you see a, uh, a huge, if you like, improvement, despite, of course, the people dying. Um, it's hard to talk about improvement in that sense, but a huge improvement in the balance in society. And the same is the case for the First and Second World Wars. The First and Second World Wars show clear breaks of the tendency for society to become richer. Uh, sorry, for the rich to become richer in society and for uh, income inequality to shoot up. Besides those three breaks, the only thing that has limited income inequality is redistribution of wealth by governments. I have a question here. Um, 
So is it, but is there, like, what are the problems then with wealth itself? Because, I mean, I feel like overall, at least the way I've been uh, taught, is that wealth is something good. Maybe if it's in many hands, but then what's the problem with wealth? So the issue with wealth is that it is not very productive for society to have incredibly rich people. And then people are trickle-down economics and all that kind of thing. The wealth spend money on their big mansions and they need builders. Well, yeah, they do, but not as much as the middle class and not as much as the poor. So if you are a social planner and you have a million euros to give to anyone in society, if you give that to a multi-billionaire, they're just going to save that money. They're already spending the money they want to spend. They've got more than enough capital. That million euros is not going to be reinvested in society. Maybe they buy shares with it and then indirectly, you know, you could see that as an investment. But that's not very clear. If you give it to, if you give, I don't know, a um, hundred times 10,000 euros to a hundred different families, uh, middle class families, they're going to spend that on buying a new car or they're going to spend that on um, buying better food or uh, better housing or things that actually stimulate the economy. So they are more actively involved in 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 making the economy, economy grow its own pie. That's, that's the first issue. So if you want an economy to grow and a society to do better with employment and those kinds of things, you want that money to go to people who actually spend it, who need the disposable income uh, more than the ultra-rich. That's, that's the economic issue. Then there is the politics behind it. The moment you create a society, and this goes all the way back to the Roman Empire, for example, where you had people like Crassus and very rich people who then got into politics, the moment you create an upper class of billionaires, they're going to have an exorbitant amount of influence over politics, which goes against the very foundation of liberal democracy. Because liberal democracy is about not having this elite, not having a small group of people just because of the way they're born or just because they happen to be particularly effective at business to rule the country. You want the whole society to be involved in that country. So there's a, there's a real price to be paid there as well. So, so just to be provocative then, then here, so are we then advocating for communism? Um, or because I mean I remember conversations and and yeah in the past where always this theme came up that there needs to be a certain level of inequality in a society. Right. I I don't know if theoretically that is necessarily true, but in practice it's probably true. By the way, inequality also existed in the communist system. So quickly, the answer is no. We're not advocating communism. Please please don't do communism, people. It's it's bad for you. Um, the only thing is that under communist system, it wasn't the kind of inequality that could be measured by bank accounts, but very much, you know, the, 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 the elites of the communist system very much live luxurious lifestyles with big mansions and, 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 and lots of wonderful holidays, except that technically their bank accounts didn't show it. But, you know, so inequality has different aspects like that, right? Uh, this is not communism. As far as I can tell, liberal democracy with capitalist capitalism as a tool to achieve liberal democracy is uh, the best system we have thought of now that doesn't mean that it's unbridled capitalism that we don't need to limit it uh, somehow and we have in the 20th century the, the the growth of the west the west as we know it today is because governments were interfering into markets and said, we're going to tax the rich more in order to redistribute some of that wealth to the poor, because that's good for all of us, including the rich. That is absolutely a necessary aspect to it. But capitalism is, is sort of, it's, it's the only economic system that we have discovered so far that actually can achieve the very long-term sustainable society that we would like to create and even the chinese with the communist chinese have understood this in many ways and they embraced capitalism while trying to maintain a political communist structure right so it is not a matter of us advocating uh, the sort of taking all the wealth from the wealthy it is us recognizing that having a wealthy upper class is a price we pay 
because we don't really know how else to do it. Because you don't want a society where a government can go and say, okay, you've got a billion euros, I'll take that, please. Thank you very much. We need to have um, a fairer system that, that would that would sort of be universally applicable in, in ways that we do not have right now. So it is not about taking away wealth from the rich. It is not about saying everyone has to have the same type of bank account and everyone has the same have to have the same type of house. It is just the simple recognition that it is a bubble to think that being wealthy is something to celebrate, that, that the fact that there are lots of millionaires and billionaires walking around, that that is somehow a good thing. No, it is a cost associated to an otherwise relatively well-functioning system. Because what we do want is a very strong middle class, because this ultimately leads to the reduction of extremes, whether it be political or economic. Exactly. A strong middle class is, is absolutely the foundation, is the basis for Western society. And uh, all the success can be traced back to that middle class. And again, the wealthy would not be able to become wealthy without the middle class, right? That's really important to remember. Uh, there is no way that you can be, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. Why are they so rich? Because the middle class are buying their products. And so for the middle class to be hollowed out by a reduction in taxation of the, the super wealthy, uh, be hollowed out by a reduction in the ability for the middle class to defend itself politically in the long term, is going to make it impossible for Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates to do their thing. In the past, whether it's a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, now we're actually really celebrating the fact that these people have become so rich. Never before in humanity we liked rich people and all of a sudden we seem to like them. Whereas really we should look at them and say, well, okay, we tolerate you because we, we don't want to be unfair and take your money away too much. But, but, but don't be too proud of your wealth because how come that you are going on four holidays a year and that you've got five houses, whereas even a small fragment of that money that you're spending on that could have been spent on helping the poor get out of their misery. See, this is something that I've observed as a German, uh, because in Germany, wealth, or particularly showing off wealth is really frowned upon. And we don't really know our rich people. Uh, there's always the example of the richest person in Germany, uh, the, the owner of Lidl, uh, so like of the supermarket chain. We don't really know what he looks like. And he's a very private individual. He lives in his private house and he basically asks for his privacy to, re to be respected. And then you compare this to the United States where um, rich people are celebrities. And, and I'm not talking about Kardashian levels as rich, but Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, they're absolutely celebrated and celebrities for their extreme wealth. Like, like heroes, heroes of society. We should all admire them for their amazing existence, right? And, and not just that, but then they call their foundation the Bill Gates Foundation, for example, you know, as in to, to, to even put more emphasis that we should all be eternally grateful. It, it is absolutely the German model that I would like to copy here in the sense almost from a perspective of, hey, we know that a externality, if you like, a negative externality of our society, a negative outcome of our uh, the way we've set up society is that some people are going to be exorbitantly rich. We understand that and we kind of accept it, but let's not celebrate it. And certainly not, let's not act as if they did so alone and that they are somehow some kind of super beings outside of every everyone else. See, exactly on this, this is uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from Robert Bosch, so the founder of, of Bosch Industries, I'm going to call them now, uh, who said, I don't pay my, uh, my workers a, a high salary um, because I'm rich. Uh, he's, no, it's very much because I pay my workers a high salary is that's the reason why I'm why I'm rich in the end. So this certain element of humility, yeah, humility uh, towards that, I think, I think would, would would do would do society good. See all, all this wealth uh, that that you were discussing among these individuals, it doesn't necessarily make them happier, right? We we know the numbers about this. That's exactly right. So there there are lots of psychological studies. Some there is a bit of deviation in what numbers exactly are being used, but as a general rule, and I think that most people when they hear this, they think, yeah, this makes sense. If you live on 10,000 euros a year and then all of a sudden you get a new job and you are 
you are offered 40,000, 50,000 euros a year, that will tremendously increase your happiness. Why? Because you don't have to stress about paying the bills. Your children will get at least food every day. Uh, you can probably buy a slightly nicer house. It's nothing huge yet, but at least your general security in life, if you like Maslow's pyramid, is going to be satisfied into much better ways. And as a result, your general satisfaction and happiness in life is going to be much higher. So from 10 to 50,000 is a huge deal. Then if you are offered a new job and you go from 50,000 to 100,000 euros, that still actually makes quite a nice difference because now you can go on holidays, nice holidays. You can make sure that your children can go to good university and you can, you can, you can support them during that university time. Um, and you know that once you get old and you have your pension, you're also going to be fine. So from 50,000 it's maybe not as big a shock, happiness shock as the first step, but it's still pretty big. Then we know that from 100,000 to roughly a million, yes, you probably still get a little bit happier because you're earning a, now a million a year, but it is not such a big deal anymore. Yeah, you can go on holiday twice or three times. You can buy a really nice house at the beach but your actual levels of happiness aren't increasing that much anymore. And once you go past that million a year in rough terms, your happiness might actually be going down. At least it stagnates, but it might be going down in terms of now you have to worry about losing your wealth. Now you have to worry about having bodyguards for your children because they could be kidnapped because the kidnappers want to want a ransom from you. You become stressed because you all of a sudden have to employ people who have to take care of your investments. The point here is that if, and I hope that all our listeners agree with this, if the, the objective of society is to create as much happiness among as many people as we can, then putting a lot of wealth in the hands of very few doesn't even increase their happiness, let alone the rest of happiness of society. You want to make society a happier, more productive place, make sure that those who are living off 10,000 euros a year get that wealth because they will actually become very productive and content participants of that society. And so how do we how do we summarize the Western bubble when it comes to economic inequality? That we have mistaken the need to have a capitalist system because it's the best system we have that synergizes quite nicely with liberal democracy and the focus on empowering the individual, we have started to equate that with celebrating wealth and sort of frowning upon poverty. That somehow poverty is a failure and wealth is a sign that you are one of the chosen ones, that you are better than everyone else and that you should be showing your wealth and that we should all admire your wealth for it, rather than saying, well, no, these people who have become wealthy, that is kind of an unfortunate side effect of the system because we can't redistribute everything. We can redistribute a lot, but we can't redistribute everything. We have to accept that some people are wealthy because otherwise we turn into communists or hardcore socialists, and that's very unproductive, and that's very bad for other reasons. But let's be modest about it. That, that, the fact that we've lost sight of that that is the bubble that we're living in. And as a result, we're eating ourselves from the inside out because one of the biggest dangers to Western society is not Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, but is the lack of a establishment that responds to the needs of the masses. And I think that this leads uh, quite well into our next category. What is the problem? When we're talking about problems, uh, there's one... <laughs> person that happens that just, just I don't know just happens to come up and uh, I, I mean I know, yeah it's the United Kingdom's uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss who at the end of the um, Tory party convention gave a speech you know, that, that big ending speech uh, and she talked about uh, growth 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 um, Boulder how's this how's this problematic <laughs> yeah so her, her objectives her three objectives were growth 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 uh, this is problematic for quite a, a number of reasons. First of all, before we talk about income inequality, growth in itself has a, we're paying a price for growth, right? And this goes all the way back to the Club of Rome from the 1970s who pointed this out. Economic growth leads to environmental degradation. Every time we consume something that's bad for the environment, 
That doesn't mean that we shouldn't consume things, we should just remember that economic growth in itself is not a good thing. Economic growth is only useful if we put it to productive use, if it makes people happier, if it makes society better, if it makes us more educated, healthier, whatever it is that we care about. And so to say that your objective is growth, growth, growth is like me looking at my house and seeing a lot of work that needs to be done and my objective is to hammer, hammer, hammer. It's not the hammering that's important, it is actually improving my house, right? Um, so it is a huge lack of understanding in the case of list trust, willful lack of understanding, I suspect, of what we're actually doing here. Growing the economy in itself cannot be an objective. Now, if the argument is growing the economy leads to prosperity for all of us and makes society better, even though we know that it also leads to environmental degradation, then maybe we can have a conversation about it. And we can say, okay, we don't like killing off the environment, but at the same time, we have to make sure that people get better off, especially the poor get better off, that those who really need um, further economic support can get it. Then maybe it makes sense. But then we get into the next conversation because Liz Truss also wants to have that growth while not redistributing income. And as we discussed previ previously in this episode, the only way to make sure that economic growth leads to prosperity for the whole society is to redistribute that income. That is the only way. If you don't actively redistribute income, then the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. That is just a matter of fact and it's been like that for a thousand years. There's no statistical analysis that says otherwise. Then they would bring up the idea of trickle-down economics. The idea that if you invest in the rich, they give money to the rich, then somehow that money trickles down into the whole society. That has been thoroughly, thoroughly debunked. It's a little bit like me saying, I see a homeless person in the street. So I am going to give money to my neighbor. And hopefully somehow at some point that neighbor will give some of that money to that homeless person. Why wouldn't I just give that money directly to the homeless person, right? Trickle-down economics is basically saying, yeah, we know that we've got poor people. We're first going to give it to the rich and hopefully sometime in the future, the poor will also benefit. Well, why not cut out the middleman and just straight away get to the poor, right? Uh, and then lastly, the problem here is that, of course, because of this ideological fanaticism of the trust government, they believe they're going to create growth through reducing the uh, the tax burden, reducing the role of the government within society. And we know that only in very specific circumstances that actually leads to economic growth. So in this case, with a developed economy like the UK's, uh, where the problems are not actually the tax burden, that is not what, what, what hampers economic growth at the moment, it is just wrong to claim that her methodology is going to lead to the objective she herself claims. So problems, wrong objective, because growth should never be an objective in itself, wrong use of that growth, and it is even questionable that it even leads to any growth at all. And it hurts the environment. And and, and as all growth, it hurts the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so this is then, again, kind of going back to, to what we discussed at the beginning of the episode, uh, saying that these are the two main challenges in society. Uh, I, I would say, if I, if I make a claim that the, the third biggest challenge in society is society being fractured, um, I think, I think there, there might be some who disagree, but I, I think it's a fair analysis. And this is something that we see as well with this. Is, I mean, we discussed this, that if you have a certain part of the population that remains poor for too long, that they become disenfranchised from society, from the government, and you can already see this, particularly in the United States, I would claim, but I also think that uh, in, in Europe and even and even Japan. And uh, yeah, so, so that's one of the problems, like another problem. And, it, and it's so you get into interesting conversations that I don't think I'm qualified to have an analysis on in itself, because this is more about morality rather than actual how systems work. But there is an interesting conversation to be had about we live in a society where the West has a global society where the West has benefited from enormous economic growth. And as a result, for, because of the 20th century, not the 21st century, because of the 20th century, we have reduced poverty tremendously. 
now we've got a global problem because now China and India and other developing nations want to do the same. And we're saying, hang on, you can't do that because of environmental degradation, because the planet can't cope with more consumption. And there, there's an interesting philosophical moral debate about what do we prioritize here? Do we prioritize children actually being able to be fed and going to school right now? Or do we prioritize the well-being of the planet in the next two, three hundred years? So if you took it in very abstract terms, um, do we want to make sure that humanity and the planet survives in the very long term? Or do we want to make sure that right now as many children and families can actually cope in relatively happy circumstances? And that is, those are conversations that are very valid to have. But those are conversations that can only exist if you step out of your bubble of middle class Westerners, where everything seems to be okay. And of course, the only thing you care about is the environment because you don't know what it's like to be hungry. You don't know what it's like to be not having medicine for your children. And therefore, obviously, the environment should take precedent as a middle class European. But if you're a Chinese farmer, maybe the question is a bit different there. I've had this frustrating conversation with so many, so many times because I always say that decarbonizing the Western world is a challenge in itself, but it's not the main challenge. The main challenge is to decarbonize growth and development for the other 7.5 billion people on this planet. And I think that this this is always always, always being, being, being lost a little bit in these uh, discussions. And then the last problem uh, that, that, that we kind of want to hint at is, is basically starving the beast, a concept we, we talked about previously, where celebrating the wealthy and then basically making government intervention dependent on, on debt that this is leading rightly, uh, like right into the starving the beast and then worse, like worse comes to worse, even increasing inequality in the end. Exactly right. We, we discussed this last week and on the day of recording this morning, um, there were news. This is uh, a week before our listeners can listen to the podcast. But the last week we said one of the strategies that Listros and uh, Kwateng might have with respect to their tax reduction and their proposals unfunded tax cut is to down the line be able to say the government can no longer afford all those social programs and we need to cut social programs we need to cut into the livelihoods of the poor today this morning lo and behold the government starts publishing memos that probably in the long term social services have to be cut because the unfunded tax cut can otherwise not be financed. So exactly the beast, I, I thought it would take longer, but already now you're seeing signs of exactly reducing government intervention. Why is this possible? This is possible because this dynamic that, was, that started in the 1970s into the 80s, Reaganomics, Thatcher, all those people, um, this idea that somehow we are being unjust on the rich and it's, we have to celebrate the rich and we shouldn't punish them for being rich by putting taxation onto them. And only if that is your mindset, you're going to be okay with starving the beast. You're going to be okay with reducing the ability for the government to actually fulfill its basic functions for a well-functioning Western society. And what you then see over the past 25 years is that more and more governments are either financing their uh, spending through indirect taxation, that VAT, which is which is a really regressive tax, which is VAT is bad for the poor, the rich don't care, right? It's the extra tax that you pay on, on the goods that you produce, uh, the, sorry, the goods that you buy. Um, through deficit spending, so creating a deficit, burdening future generations, again, for the rich, that's absolutely fine, for the poor, that's bad. Um, and no longer through actually doing the decent thing and saying, you know what, it's okay for a someone who has 10 billion euros in their bank account to reduce that to nine or eight or seven billion, and they're still going to be absolutely fine. And with this, then let's move on to, to the last category. What now? Well, I mean... Uh... There are no solutions, at least not from our side. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on uh, no worries uh, to our <laughs> listeners. Do not worry, uh, we will not leave you without without solutions. Um, one of the one of the discussions I would like to to have here is 
um, income inequality worldwide is rising, and with this, uh, again, you have the you have the you have the West kind of being there, very rich, very well off, and the rest of the world, at least parts of the rest of the world, uh, not so well. And here, I'm feeling like first of all, the West cannot keep its status, and this is part of the Western bubble. And the second question here is um, is why why do we actually want to grow? Like like why do we want to to grow? What's what's the purpose behind this? Well, that second question, that's what we already hinted on with respect to list trust. Growth needs to have a purpose. Now, there's some economic reasons. Again, we can't really get into it because that's not the purpose of this podcast. Why, if you have stagnation in growth, there are some unfortunate outcomes for that that actually endanger uh, basic economic systems. A little bit of growth every year is is good for keeping the system going. But, but, but even there... Making the pie bigger and bigger without having a purpose of what you want to do with that pie doesn't make any sense. And so we have to have a conversation like we have to have in general about our society. What do we want to accomplish? And if what we want to accomplish is simply continuing on the path of creating more and more ultra rich while the poor are being left behind, then we are on a path in which our system at some point will collapse. It's just unavoidable. So if growth can get focused on creating more engagement within society uh, from what we would say the working classes or the economically lower classes uh, into society, then that would benefit all of us and that would make probably sense. And we would probably be willing to pay a certain environmental price for that, not the complete collapse of the environment, but it is a balance. These things are a balancing act. But there has to be that purpose to economic growth. With respect to the first question about the position of the West, the West still is getting relatively richer compared to quite a lot of other places on Earth. Not if you take China and India into integration. So China has called up very, very, is catching up very, very quickly with Western Europe and North America, certainly certain parts of Chinese society. There's still a lot of poverty in China, but if you look at the middle class in China, they called up very, very rapidly with the West. Uh, with respect to a lot of, for example, sub-Saharan African countries, the, the, the picture is more complex. With respect to certain parts of Latin America, the picture is more complex. And um, the West still has an advantage, economic advantage over them that is quite obvious. The issue with our Western model is that if we are losing economic dominance over the world, which I think from a humanities perspective is probably a good thing, but we're, we're losing economic dominance over the world. And we don't have a success story to tell to the world because our society is slowly being torn apart by income inequality, wealth inequality and other such things then the rest of the world is definitely not going to embrace our wonderful model towards the future. And that will put a lot of pressure from the outside on our model to change. And in many ways, that's what you're already seeing, right? That the world is not looking at Western Europe or the United States necessarily as their shining beacon to follow. Without our economic dominance, it's going to be very hard to maintain our status in global affairs. That's completely obvious. Well, and then this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on economic inequality. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. We will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Boulder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Uh, I thought I'd take a quote that highlights another issue related to income inequality. Throughout human civilizations, religious, this is not a quote, this is me talking. Um, throughout human civilizations, we've had religions to kind of counterbalance a sense of unease among the masses when it came to the ultra-wealthy, when it came to the, the economic elites of Roman civilization or Chinese civilization or Egyptian civilization. And that's that tool that we had at our disposal was religion by saying basically, hey, your life now as a slave or as a peasant in the Middle Ages might be rotten and you, you're struggling throughout the day. And you see these other really wealthy people that 
are living in luxury, but that's okay because later on when you die, God will reward you. Uh, or whatever deity you believe in, they will counterbalance that in some ways. And, you know, there are lots of quotes uh, from different religious scriptures, right, that seem to hint at this, that it's probably not a good thing to be rich because later on in heaven or in hell, you'll get your reward or retribution. Liberal democratic Western society actually is becoming more and more secular. That's part of the dynamic. And so religion is no longer that tool that sort of keeps the masses at ease. Because if you do not believe, and less and less people believe in heaven and hell, less and less people believe in any kind of divine retribution or divine rewards later on, it's going to be harder and harder morally and psychologically to justify you living in extreme poverty when you see people buying 500 million yachts. And one person who seems to clearly understand this, and the one I'm quoting, is Napoleon Bonaparte. I assume that I don't have to introduce who he was. And he said, Religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. Mm -hmm.